Welcome back to the EM Stud Podcast. This episode is brought to you by another four-letter word, Eris. We've recently talked about things like personal statements, video interviews, VSAS, and slows, and today I am super excited to have Dr. Chris Wollobin here to talk about the Electronic Residency Application Service. Dr. Wollobin is the Associate Dean for Student Affairs here at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine and an expert on medical student advising through the whole residency application process. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Nate. Uh, It's been an honor to be here. I'd like to start simply by uh, asking you to just share a bit about yourself. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you do your training? That sort of thing. Sure. So I'm actually from Virginia. I went to undergrad at the College of William and Mary where I was a chemistry major. And then I came to the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine to do medical school and my residency training in pediatrics. During my chief resident year in pediatrics, I Uh, started doing some moonlighting in our emergency department and found that I really had a fascination and love for pediatric emergency medicine. So that's my clinical specialty now. Uh, In my role as Associate Dean for Student Affairs, I spend about 70% of my time working with medical students and the other 30% uh, working clinically in the emergency department. Um, I feel very lucky to have stumbled into my role in Student Affairs. Uh, I as a medical student here, uh, started working with the admissions committee uh, and some other administrative uh, jobs within the School of Medicine and started to make some connections with people. Uh, When I was a resident, I started uh, once again to participate on the admissions committee and eventually became chair of the admissions committee. And then as a number of people retired, uh, for whatever reason, I got offered a position in student affairs. And so this is my ninth year working uh, with medical students in that role. Wow, that's a that's a long time. It's been a long time, and I've learned <laughs> a lot along the way. Uh, and my kind of general approach to my job in student affairs is looking at my perspective of when I was a student here, what were things I wish we had had in place, particularly with regards to career advising. And from that, I've developed a four-year comprehensive longitudinal career advising program uh, that uh, all of our medical students are able to participate in. Uh, as part of the curriculum. Now, as the student affairs dean, um, as you mentioned, you certainly play a key role in uh, not just advising medical students, but really sort of shaping them throughout the four years of their undergraduate medical education. Can you elaborate a little bit on some of your more specific responsibilities? Mm -hmm. So, as the student affairs dean, uh, I am responsible for all the career advising programs for our medical students. So I oversee uh, the preclinical and clinical uh, advising tracks. So we have a, a program here called Project Heart, uh, which is where our students are broken up into small groups and they meet every six to eight weeks with a faculty advisor during the first two years of medical school just to check in and make sure they're getting the support they need from each other and also from uh, their faculty advisor. Uh, They transition then into the clinical years where they get assigned a specialty specific advisor based on the specialty they're interested in matching into and so I oversee um, the assignment of those as well as making sure our advisors receive current information 
uh, to make sure they're giving the best advice to the students to help them in the residency match process. Uh, that's my main, uh, I think, job within the, the uh, student affairs realm is to really make sure each of our students uh, understand the residency match process, uh, are competitive for the specialties that they're interested in applying to, and providing them support through that whole process. Uh, other tasks that I get assigned, uh, so I do a lot of uh, behind the scenes work that students have no idea that I do. For example, creating affiliation agreements for visiting students when they go on away rotations. Oh, that, that sounds fun. It's, it's a pain, but it is something <laughs> that I do. <laughs> so you, you, um, you certainly play uh, just an enormous role in helping students navigate their way through really uh, you know, a confusing process to, to get into a residency. Can you give me just a very general overview of that whole process? You know, when does it start and, and what are sort of the steps involved? Mm-hmm. So I think the residency application process actually starts the day you get accepted and admitted into medical school. And so uh, one of the things that I think is important for students to do is to really think about their professional identity development as a physician. Uh, and experiences that they have during their first and second year even uh, where they're shadowing different physicians and getting exposed to different specialties to kind of figure out where they fit within medicine. Uh, And so that's one of the first steps. But the official application process for residency programs begins near the end of the third year uh, for most medical students. So usually in May uh, of their third year, students get a token to access the ARIS application. So ARIS stands for the Electronic Residency Application Service. This is very similar to AMCAS that medical students use to get into medical school. Uh, So it's a service uh, sponsored through the AAMC uh, and through ARIS you need to upload all of your information from your CV, uh, your personal statement, coordinate your letters of recommendation, and that's the official application that you send out to residency programs. And the first day that these applications can be transmitted is September 15th uh, of any given year. And my best advice for students is to have as much of the application materials complete by September 15th as possible. And the reason being, every residency program is a little bit different in how they process applications. Some is a first come, first serve uh, uh, process where people who get their applications in early uh, will get offered an interview early. Uh, Other programs tend to wait for additional information such as the Dean's letter uh, that gets released on October 1st uh, to begin to sort through and uh, more systematically look at who they invite for interviews. Uh, The most important thing is to try to have your application in on time. Uh, One of the things that has happened over the past couple years is that every student across the country who's applying to residency programs would log on to ARIS on September 15th at 9 a.m. to try to upload their applications. And of course, the system would crash. And so one of the things that was done differently this year is between September 6th and September 15th, students can go into ARIS upload all of their materials, pay their application fee, and then behind the scenes on September 15th, without having everyone need to log on, the application materials will be date stamped uh, on September 15th. Uh, So it gives students a little bit more flexibility to get their application materials together and get their applications submitted on time. So you just brought up a couple of very important dates there, September 6th uh, being the the start date for 
application submission September 15th being the date when uh, programs really start to be able to look at them uh, and it's it's September now I mean this is we're right around the corner yes it's uh, first of September and so many of my students here at VCU are finishing up their applications at this point and submitting their personal statements in for review and you know some of the, the elements of their personal uh, of their application uh, looking at their heiress application in particular all their activities making sure that everything is uh, representing them well so some of our students i'm sure are listening to this and thinking well well wait a minute uh, it's it's september but i haven't gone on my aways yet i haven't gotten all my letters uh you know clearly i'm not going to be able to complete my entire application by tuesday uh, so instead, what, what are the components that students really need to have done now, ready to go? Try to have your application as complete as possible. So that means having your personal statement written and uploaded. It means having your heiress application complete with all of your activities, so your work, volunteer, and research experiences. Uh, having as many of your letters of recommendation available as possible, so you can only transmit four letters of recommendation to any one residency program. And once you've submitted a letter, you cannot replace it with another one. So if you anticipate completing an away elective or an acting internship in September or October, save a spot for that one letter of recommendation that you plan to get. And then once it's available, upload that letter and transmit your application to programs. Now looking at the ARIS uh, application specifically, it's broken down into different sections such as uh, personal information, biographics, education, work experience, etc. I want to get your thoughts on which sections you feel are, are most important to really focus in on. Like take hobbies and interests for example. Uh, this is a section that actually may raise some interview questions later on. So what's, what's appropriate to put in there and what's not? Yeah, a lot of people think that's not a very important part of the application, but it is very important because you're correct. That's where a lot of uh, application or interview questions will come from on the interview. So I always tell my students, pick hobbies and interests that you truly enjoy doing. What are some things in your spare time that you have fun doing, uh, things that interest you, things that you're capable of doing as well. Uh, for example, I've heard in the past that sometimes when a student puts down that they play the guitar, that they've shown up at an interview and someone <laughs> has a guitar sitting in the room and they're expected to play it. Oh, God, that's, so, that's, that's yeah, terrible. It's kind of intimidating, but it's true. So just make sure it's something that you enjoy doing, something that shows that you have a balanced life outside of your academic responsibilities as a medical student. Uh, so, you know, be able to talk about, and you can just simply list activities that, you're, uh, that you enjoy participating in. You can create a, a small paragraph that describes your activities, but make it something that you're really interested in. And you'd be surprised. Sometimes that actually helps you stimulate conversation in an, in an interview. If you have someone that shares a common interest, you might end up talking about that for the majority of the time of your interview as opposed to other topics. Now, along those same lines, back when uh, Scott and I were doing the personal statements episode, we sort of brought up things maybe not to include, and, you know, this being an election year, things like politics, perhaps. I mean, if, if you truly have an interest in that, um, you know, that's great, but d does it belong here? Yeah, it's a, a great question, and I caution people to 
not put things on their application that might be seen as controversial. So avoiding political viewpoints, avoiding uh, topics about religious beliefs and uh, things of that nature that not everyone may have the same point of view. But the counter argument to that is if you put those things down, you might be picked up by to interview at a place that shares common themes. So it might be a way for you to self-select a program that's going to be supportive of you. Now, moving on, there's another section uh, that allows you to detail work and volunteer experience. What do you tell your students to include there? I that, you know, one time back in middle school, I spent an hour helping to clean up a playground. I mean, is that something that I, that I put in there? Yeah, the work and volunteer experiences that you include really should be things that have significantly shaped your decision to become a physician and also particularly in a particular specialty. Uh, I encourage my students to have a majority of their activities from their time in medical school. But as many medical students know, the time that they have to dedicate towards activities is often limited because they're so busy studying and preparing for board exams and shelf exams. So it's also okay to include things from prior to medical school that were significant contributions uh, to, to your experience and your personal development. For example, if you volunteered at a soup kitchen for two or three nights during college, that's probably not something I would include. But if you were a volunteer coordinator for that soup kitchen where you helped recruit volunteers, train them, make sure the schedule was completed, it showed some leadership, that's an example of something from prior to medical school that I think you could include. And also we have many non-traditional medical students here at VCU School of Medicine. And so I encourage them to kind of explain gaps in time between their undergraduate education and the start of medical school. So if you were working or did research or something, um, you want to make sure that there's some uh, explanation of what, what that time gap was uh, between your educational uh, time periods. And then finally, research experiences. I tell people go as far back as you possibly can. Anything and everything that you've done with regards to research is an important uh, aspect of your application. So looking at a scientific problem, regardless of if it's specific to the specialty that you're applying to, gaining those skills of investigating a question, uh, looking at the data, analyzing it, uh, that research method uh, is very important to demonstrate that you've had some type of experience and it can be even from experiences in high school. Now I guess to play uh, devil's advocate a bit to that last statement, um, you know, what if you were involved in a research project, but now I don't really remember what I did or, or what was going on. Yeah. Do I include that at, at risk of being it, asked a question? If you put it on your uh, application, you better be prepared to talk about it. So I always make sure that students uh, read their CV, remind themselves of research projects that they've been involved in, because you never do know when they're going to ask a question about that. Uh, for example, I, back in my days at William & Mary, I did organic chemistry research and I had one publication uh, from a compound that I helped uh, create. I had a copy of that with me when I went on my residency <laughs> interviews just in case someone asked about it and I made sure I read it and remembered what it was that I did during that research project. Did you bring the actual compound too? So I did not. It, it would have been too dangerous to do. Uh, but so also, um, and I just, I just wanted to clarify also, even if you don't actually have a publication, correct, you can still, you know, you, you really should include sort of related experiences. Absolutely. Um, 
so if, if you don't have a publication but you did participate in a research experience that that process of participating in research is just as important as a publication and then I also tell students too if they have publications make sure they go back and create a research experience for that publication because there had to have been some sort of work that went into creating that publication so oftentimes students will have a list of multiple publications and then have maybe one or two research experiences go back and backtrack and create a research experience for each of those publications. Um, before we move on, I just also wanted to go back and talk about previous work experience, like actual jobs, for example. Um, if a student, for example, has had you know many jobs over the past few years, you know maybe as a waiter or bartender or you know working at a golf course, something like that, you know what what do they really need to include and how many? Because mm -hmm. clearly this section could be very very long. Yeah, I don't think you need to list every single job that you had, but I encourage students, if they were working a significant amount of time to help support themselves through college and still taking full-time credit uh, you know, in college, I think that's something that's important to talk about. Uh, it shows that you have a lot of initiative, you are good with time management, and you know that that type of job experience I think is important to be able to demonstrate and you have to be able to talk about that in your description of the experience in order to um, you know have it be meaningful uh, so if it's something that helped shaped you if it's something that really showed that you have the ability to balance your work and your professional life uh, in, in your personal life very well I think those are the types of experiences I would include well, great. Now, there's also a section um, that asks you to describe whether or not you've been convicted of a misdemeanor or a felony, and obviously it's great if this doesn't apply to you, but if, if you have that history, what do you write? I mean, obviously you shouldn't lie about it, but, right. but do I just say, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't do it again? What, what do I put? So if this happens to be something that is pertinent to you, I think it's important for you to not only disclose what happened and provide some basic details about the experience, but also show how did this change you as a person? What did you learn from that experience? How will you make sure that that experience doesn't happen again in the future? Uh, so I always tell people, take a potential red flag and turn it into something positive. So what is it that you gained from that experience? What did you learn about yourself? How did you make sure that this is something that hasn't happened again in the future? Um, and then the other thing, for certain types of misdemeanors, and particularly for felony convictions, it may have implications with regards to your medical licensing potential someday. And so I strongly encourage for people to seek legal advice uh, to determine is this something that you should disclose and if so, how do you do it appropriately to give yourself the best footing moving forward with regards to potential medical licensing in the future. Um, so that's, that's been something that I've encouraged some of our students to do if they've had particularly um, you know, like uh, repeated alcohol violations or DUIs, it, it may come up to, to haunt them in the future, and I want them to have sound legal advice as they're moving forward. Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. Uh, now, moving on to something maybe a little bit less dangerous, uh, I always tell my students to be very careful about typos and, and spelling problems and just general misinformation on the application, whether or not it was intentional or not. 
any other tips overall for just filling this out well? I absolutely agree to make sure it's flawless. Um, residency programs are getting more and more applications from applicants. Students are applying to more and more programs. And one of the ways that sometimes programs will weed people out is if they see obvious typos, uh, grammar, uh, spelling errors, um, things like that that make it easy for them to put their application to the side and look at another applicant. So my best advice is to have a, a couple of different eyes, set of eyes, look at your application, review it for content, review it for any errors in spelling, grammar, uh, make sure that you have several people proofread your application before submitting it. Um, with regards to the accuracy of information, just make sure you're putting down things correctly. Uh, for example, we had a student several years ago who incorrectly put down their initial matriculation date to medical school when they had to extend their medical education due to failing a year. One residency program that they looked at uh, that looked at their application really carefully. Notice the discrepancy between the heiress application and the, and the transcript and reported it as a match violation. And so mm. you just want to make sure you're very careful about putting in correct dates uh, for your medical school education. Uh, make sure you don't have any errors. Sure, sure. Definitely time to double check, triple check, make sure yes. all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Uh, Let's move on to uh, a different topic. So, well, sort of a different topic. Uh, tell me more about the the MSPE, the Medical Student Performance Evaluation, also formerly known as the Dean's Letter. What exactly uh, is that? What, what's in it? So, the MSPE, many students confuse it for being a letter of recommendation, and it is not. It is simply a statement of your academic performance during your time in medical school. Uh, so the, the MSPE is released to residency programs as part of the application process on October 1st. It's a national release date. There is a somewhat standardized format that medical schools should be following in the creation of their uh, MSPE. So it should be fairly consistent from school to school. Um, the main elements of the MSPE are the unique attributes section uh, for the, the medical student. and what a lot of medical schools do is actually have the student themselves write this section uh, to be included with the MSPE. Uh, then there's a summary of your academic performance in both the preclinical and the clinical curriculum. Uh, the, probably the most important part of the MSPE that program directors look at would be your third year grades as well as the comments from your third year clerkships if that's uh, included. Uh, within the MSPE. And then whatever type of ranking system your school may have. Uh, so for example here at VCU School of Medicine we don't report individual ranks but we report quartiles. So if our student was in the first quartile for the preclinical curriculum, the second quartile for the uh, clinical curriculum, and then what their overall uh, uh, quartile would be. Uh, and then there's a closing statement uh, that I from reading so many uh, MSPEs across the country, they all sound very glowing. Uh, so it's different levels of, of, of support, uh, but, but they all are generally very supportive. Uh, and so I think what program directors look at the most uh, and use the, the Dean's Letter for is to really interpret 
the transcript and to kind of see what does it mean to get an honors at this school. Uh, so if a, a third year clerkship only gives 10% of the student honors, that's very different than a program where 80 or 90% of the student get honors in that particular uh, clerkship. And so that's why uh, the Dean's Letter really exists, is to help interpret the transcript. Um, a lot of students wonder why fourth year rotations are not included uh, on a Dean's Letter. And that's because medical schools across the country have different start dates for their fourth year and uh, the community uh, of student affairs deans feels that it's not fair for some students to have fourth year uh, acting internships and away rotation comments included in their dean's letter where other students might not even be able to have started those types of experiences and so for that reason it's strictly just third year clerkship summaries so once the applications are certified and submitted uh, it's pretty much just time to sit back and relax until graduation, right? I mean, that, that you're done at that point, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what, what else happens after that? After they hit the hit the go button on, on ARIS, what happens after that? So after applications are submitted, this is when students start kind of hearing about residency interview offers. And every program is a little bit different in how they offer interviews. Uh, one of the most important things I tell my students is on their demographic information page to have a current email address as well as a cell phone number that they can check frequently during the interview uh, season. Uh, and that's because sometimes residency programs will offer interviews in batches and there may be 30 interview slots available and they offer it to 50 students and the first 30 students are able to get an interview slot wherever other 20 are not. And so having someone uh, make sure that they check their phone messages and email messages very frequently during the interview season I think is very important. In fact, if you're going to be on a away rotation or completing a surgical rotation where you're going to be in the OR for extended periods of time, maybe even have a proxy, someone that can oh, wow. access your email account to check for interview offers. Because uh, I've seen where interview offers are all taken away within an hour or two from some programs. It, it gets to be that competitive. So students will be getting interview offers, scheduling them, coordinating them, traveling for interviews, really any time between mid-October and the end of January, um, and uh, making sure that they are uh, you know, accepting interview offers in a timely manner. And also if they end up scheduling too many interviews and needing to cancel them, make sure that they give plenty of notice to the program so they can offer an interview to someone else. So I tell my students as a rule of thumb, you know, make sure you have at least two weeks notification to let a program try to offer a spot to someone else if they're going to be canceling an interview slot. Yeah, that's, that's a great point that we've brought up before that um, there's just so many applicants now that, that canceling well ahead of time allows that program to, to fill in that spot with yeah. another another applicant. I also use that to weaker students' advantage. Uh, so if they're not getting a lot of interview offers, I usually will encourage them to contact the residency program coordinator or program director at programs they're interested in. Let them know that they're willing and able to travel at the last minute if they have any late interview cancellations. And that has helped some of our weaker students get some interview offers uh, later in application season where sometimes it's harder to get them. Sure, sure. Okay, so I want to wrap up with just uh, a few final questions on some other things uh, to think about. Uh, and one of those being the photo. Should 
should I go all out glamour shot or should it be sort of a fun picture with my buddies at a club or, you know, something more akin to my passport with an awkward smile? What, what do you think? I usually encourage our students to have just a simple professional headshot. And it doesn't mean you have to go to a photo studio and have uh, a picture taken by a professional photographer. I really think the quality of photo images that you can get from even using an iPhone nowadays is, is sufficient. So have a nice clean background, uh, be in professional attire, uh, and just a nice shoulder and headshot is really the best thing uh, that, you, uh, that you can do to, to submit. Certainly you don't want to have a picture you know, where you're consuming alcoholic beverages, and I've actually seen pictures like this before. I'm like, oh, don't, no. don't pull those types of pictures and post those online. But, but just a nice professional headshot is what I usually recommend. So, so really just keep in mind that this is a, an application for a job Correct. in a sense. Correct. Um, and you mentioned just a second ago uh, posting photos online. I mean, what, what do you think about Facebook? So, I mean, I have a Facebook account. I think most people do. Um, most people have Instagram, things like that. So just be professional uh, and really think about what it is that you post on your uh, on social media. Um, I have heard more and more frequently that programs will go and do a search for their applicants' uh, social media accounts. and. If you have unprofessional pictures, unprofessional comments, those are things that may come to haunt you. So I totally recommend cleaning up your Facebook page, making sure that your pictures are appropriate. Nothing that could be construed as being unprofessional uh, is is present on social media. Yeah, great great advice. And that's true for residency and, and beyond as well. Yeah. Uh, any last words of wisdom for our students out there? Well, I think, you know, Talking to students and current residents uh, that have recently gone through the application process can be really helpful. Uh, I think, you know, having someone who's experienced it and can give you their advice uh, is is really going to help if you have any anxiety uh, about this process. And the other thing is really look for statistics uh, to make sure that you're applying for specialties that you're competitive for. Uh, you know, you've worked hard for many, many years to get to this point in your uh, uh, medical education. Uh, make sure that you're making decisions that are going to give you uh, job satisfaction, but also that are realistic. And if you are shooting for something that you are maybe not as competitive for, make sure you have an alternative plan in place. And what would that parallel plan be? in order to assure that you have a job at the end of medical school. A final big thanks to Dr. Chris Wollivan, Associate Dean for Student Affairs at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine. If you'd like to learn more about ARIS, the AAMC has more information, including a frequently asked question section on their website, which we'll provide a link to in our show notes. For more EM stud episodes and general goodness for students interested in EM, visit our website at www.cdemcurriculum.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at ERDrNate, that's E-R-D-R-N-8, as well as my co-host at EMedCoach. Good luck with those applications. More to come on EM Studies.